Hi, my name is Devin Moore. I'm the violist of the Isidore String Quartet, and you're listening to Talking Blues. So, I saw you three weeks ago tomorrow, I think. Yes. Yes. And your life, I think, has changed. But has it changed? Um, pretty drastically, yeah. <laughs> Which is pretty exciting. I mean, we were talking about your involvement with um, the Banff International String Quartet Competition. Mm -hmm. At that point, you were, you hadn't won yet, um, and now you you guys came in first, mm -hmm. and things have happened. Yes, yes, they have. <laughs> so I want to. I think I want to get into that more deeply. But let's talk about how you got there. So sure. I believe your grandfather has a lot to do with who you are musically. Tell me about your grandfather. Absolutely. So, um, yeah, I grew up in a single mother household in, in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, uh, Carnegie to be exact, um, the correct way to say it. <laughs> and, um, and so I, I had a very close relationship, not only with my mom, but with her father as well. Uh, and he was a big lover of classical music. He lived right across the street from the Pittsburgh Symphony at Heinz Hall, where they were. And he had probably 500 CDs of classical music. And he used to play it in the car, and I used to stay with him on the weekends from time to time. So I was sort of immersed in it that way from a young age. Um, but nobody in my family is directly a musician or had pursued music as a career. So I, I grew up singing um, a lot, and then I think I was about eight um, when I started violin through my school's orchestra program um, because it was the smallest and the cheapest and the easiest to carry on the bus. <laughs> so um, yeah, that's that's sort of you know it was it was my grandfather's early introduction. Um, or my early introduction, rather, through my grandfather that made me aware of what an orchestra was and what a violin was. And so I said, you know, it seems like a fun time. Might as well try it out. Do you have any idea how he got the bug or how he came to love classical music? Um, he used to work in radio. Uh, he was. I, I grew up watching the Looney Tunes and old cartoons and old movies. And so that was sort of another place where I was exposed to classical music was through like old cartoons from the 30s, 40s, 50s, 60s. Um, and yeah, he used to draw, he used to teach me how to draw like the 20th Century Fox logo and all the Looney Tunes characters. <laughs> and so I think he was just a lover of um, music and art and entertainment all around. I'm not sure if Looney Tunes gets the credit that it should for how it, what it has done for classical music or how it has exposed people to classical music. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, so did you take the violin very quickly? Yeah, so um, they handed us the instrument at school and said, okay, now don't pick up the bow. You're just supposed to pluck the strings for like the first two weeks. And so I went home on the first day and I plucked the strings and I was like, okay, I'm bored now. So then I picked up the bow and my mom was like, you're not supposed to do that. And then I played a little bit and she was like, well, it doesn't, it doesn't sound bad. So you can keep going. Uh, and so I sort of just like immediately 
I realized that I had some sort of affinity for the instrument. Um, it sort of just, it felt natural. It seems like a thing that, oh, I really want to figure this out really early on. And so, um, yeah, I had, I sort of quickly became involved in my school's program in third or fourth grade. Why do you think you had that thing? <laughs> like I could imagine so anybody learning, or most people learning the violin would be making some horrendous sounds. Yeah. Um, I think for me, you know, I grew up just singing a lot and I loved the piano and I'm a visual artist as well. Um, and so the, the, I think with the violin, it was sort of just an extension of some artistic thing that I could latch on to. I, I'm very much a person where if there's a new skill, I will throw myself into it for hours without sleeping or eating and trying to figure out how to do something quickly. So I think those first few days on the violin, I was like, I watched videos and I looked at everything and I was like, I'm going to figure this out because uh, I really want to be good at this quickly. <laughs> I don't like, I really don't like being bad at things, which is uh, sometimes not a, not a great quality, but I think at the time it was sort of gave me the motiv motivation to figure out what the violin, how it worked and what it was. Okay, so by the time you were 16 or something, you're playing mm -hmm. with the U.S. String Orchestra yes. or Students Orchestra. So you obviously accomplished it. At what point, if you started at eight or nine, mm -hmm. at what point did you feel comfortable with your violin? Yeah. Um, so through my school's program, I had a wonderful teacher, Martha Kandrak, who started me on the violin. Uh, and she was in charge of the intermediate school orchestra at the time. And so she introduced me through a student teacher of hers to the head of Duquesne University um, in Pittsburgh. Uh, they have a wonderful music program. And he was like, you know, we need to get this kid getting into private lessons. And so I started private lessons with my teacher, Roy Son, in the fifth grade. It's about two years after I started playing uh, through the program. And I was very fortunate that he, you know, didn't charge me for those lessons ever not once and so then i was actually able to afford i was still playing on like a 20 dollars a month um violin and so to be able to study with a um a retired member of the pittsburgh symphony was such a huge deal and so then from there i became involved with various youth orchestras in pittsburgh regional youth orchestras um and so i sort of was just you know Becoming more involved in that way, I was becoming more involved in musical theater. I was a huge nerd, so I was doing a lot academically. I think at the time, I just wanted to do everything. Um, and then once I was 16, I had applied to the National Youth Orchestra in the United States of America, um, which is a program run by Carnegie Hall. Um, it was That was its fourth year in existence, and I had no expectations. I was like, this would be cool, and I threw my application in, and um, it was sort of a dream come true. We, um, I got to play at Carnegie Hall for the first time and we did a European tour in my year. So it was two weeks in Amsterdam, Copenhagen, France, wow. Prague. It was, it was an absolutely incredible, it was an absolute dream. And I was, I got a chance to meet so many other musicians um, my age that were either planning on pursuing it or we're doing other things, but we're taking music very seriously. I got to work with some incredible faculty members and also travel. Um, I had done the, the Jimmy Awards that year as well, the National High School Musical Theater Awards, um, and they overlapped by three days. So I was able to figure out a way to do both. So those two things at that time in my life were very much like, oh, I'm 
you know, I'm a junior in high school. I'm thinking about, you know, what I want to do for school. And I just did these two incredible artistic things. Maybe that's something that I could consider pursuing as a potential, uh, I guess, um, foundation of education you know i i use the word career loosely because who knows when you're 16 you have no idea what's going to happen in a few years well it's amazing how much you accomplished by that time and and so let's talk a little bit about your singing and acting sure so how did that love come about and and how did you manage to learn the violin and also dedicate time to that yeah um so i mean i i grew up singing i sort of just remember I can't remember a time when I wasn't just as a little kid. And so I did like chorus in school. And then I eventually got involved with the musical theater program at my high school. It was a public high school, um, but it had an incredible musical theater program. And so when I got to high school, I started doing the shows. And my junior year, we did Les Mis. And uh, I was lucky to play the role of Jean Valjean. And then I was nominated for a Gene Kelly Award, which is the regional awards in Pittsburgh. And then I was fortunate enough to win that. So then that took us to, took me to the Jimmy Awards, um, where I was a finalist um, there as well. I got a chance to perform at the Minskoff Theater on Broadway, work with um, so many incredible actors, producers, etc. Um, and that was just a hobby that I really enjoyed and became like really passionate about. Um, and so, yeah, it's, I, I think, everything sort of happened organically. It was just like, oh, I enjoy doing a lot of things. I, I was a big, I will say was, maybe am a big yes person. Again, <laughs> uh, either a really good or a really bad quality. Um, but I loved in high school just being involved in absolutely everything. So the, the theater thing was an organic from young. I was singing and that just morphed its way into me taking any other opportunities that I could to, to sing and be on stage. So... On top of that, you mm -hmm. do photography and you do art. Yes. <laughs> and then, academically, you were into physics and engineering. <laughs> Absolutely. Before I, I know it's, <laughs> I feel like such a nerd. But I, yeah, I, I was, um, I was dead set on being a brain surgeon since I was little. It was like um, the medical my. I don't know where I found an interest in that too, but like my, my mom is in that, she was a waitress for 18 years, um, raising me and my sister, but now she's a respiratory therapist. She's been a respiratory therapist for about eight years now. Um, and so, and my, I, my grandmother majored in psychology and other things. So that like, um, the medical field is prevalent, more prevalent in my family than a um, music vocation. So that was something that I was also super interested in. I never felt pressured. My mom's like the coolest person on the face of the earth. Sorry, imagine. going on a tangent. She's like, she was like, you can do whatever you want. She was like, you know, coming from Pittsburgh and being the size that, that I am, she was thought I was going to play football. And then I told her I wanted to play the violin. She was like, okay, you're not allowed to quit for a year. <laughs> you have to do it for a year. And then if you want to quit, you can quit. But she's my, my family's super supportive and all those things. Um, so I sort of had this open field to, experiment with what I was good at or what I really wanted to do. And so I found myself just like doing a lot. Um, it's, it, it was how I felt comfortable actually was being too busy. Um, did sports come into this at all? Like, were you ever into any kind of no. sports? Really? <laughs> I mean, no, I, I, uh, I never, once I 
found some interest in sports. I had already been too far deep into the music realm that it was like, you got to protect your hands. Right. Um, yeah. Now I have a good relationship with like going to the gym and <laughs> physical fitness as like a necessity. But yeah, sports was always that realm where I was like, I, I don't know if I have the, the time for that with everything else that I'm doing. So at what point do you decide to focus more on the violin or viola? Because there's mm -hmm. that transition time. But um, yes, as opposed to singing and acting. Yeah. Um, so after I did the National Youth Orchestra, I had actually quit the violin. So I, I had applied to the National Youth Orchestra probably in January of 2016 or in December of 2015. Um, and then I had stopped taking violin lessons because I had done a little bit of chamber music on viola. And for some reason I was like, you know, I don't even remember what the impetus was. I like left my violin lesson and I told my mom, I said, I just told my teacher I'm not coming back next week and I want to switch to viola. She looked at me, she was like, are you sure? Because I, at the time I had been like concert master of multiple things and was sort of doing a lot on the violin. She asked me if I was sure and I said yes. And she was like, okay. And so we found an amazing teacher um, who taught a lot of the great violists um, in Pittsburgh, young violists in Pittsburgh. And I started viola lessons that year in 2016. And so when I had gone to NYO, I had already stopped taking violin lessons. So I sort of had to like, I spent a lot of time practicing because I couldn't take my, I couldn't practice beforehand because I was doing 16 hours a day at the Jimmy Awards two weeks ahead of time. So I had to like prepare by myself and I went to my own, had a great time, but I hung out with all the violists anyway. Um, and so I had started viola lessons when I, in 2016. And when I got back from NYO, I was like, I really want to, I want to try this out. What I'm going to and I was like, okay, I have all these universities I'm going to apply to for X, Y, Z, and then I'll apply to some music schools. And then as I was narrowing things down, I sort of just kept feeling, I, I don't know, I just had a feeling that was like, you know, you just got to go for it with the music. And if it doesn't work out, if you don't get into a school, or you don't get enough money, you could take a year and then apply to something else later. But I was like, you know, I've done 8 million things my whole life. This is a this is an important time to just say, okay, I'm going to try this one thing because um, I think all the other forms of artistic expression came much easier to me than the nuance of the instrument. Um, or like, I felt like uh, there was so much I could gain from a degree in viola or in violin. So I started with this teacher and she for lack of a better term, kicked my ass in the best way possible to figure out how to play this instrument. I had read it in chamber music. I had switched in my youth orchestra for my senior year of high school, but I like did not know anything. So she got me ready to apply to schools. I applied to three music schools. I applied to Juilliard, New England Conservatory, and Manhattan School of Music. Those were the three um, on like a few months of viola lessons. And I was like, you know what? This is a... <laughs> really setting myself up for something but i i went for it and i had also done a competition in pittsburgh called the pittsburgh concert society that year as a soloist as a duet and with my quartet and i was grateful to win as a soloist in a duet um with my really close friend and one of the adjudicators was the president of manhattan school of music and this was after i had applied but before i had had a chance to audition and 
after doing the Pittsburgh Concert Society, I got a chance to like meet with him and be like, I'm applying for your school. He was like, great. Like you would be, we would love to have you play a good audition, obviously. But so I had established a personal relationship with him in New York. I applied to New York schools and Boston schools because I wanted to be in those places. I wanted to be in big cities. I love Pittsburgh, but it's a little tiny. <laughs> um, and so I hear they have good sandwiches. Uh, oh, I mean, if you want good music, good food, good culture, um, it's a, it's a, it's a lot. I'm so fortunate that I grew up there as well. I love Pittsburgh. I love to go back for a few days out of the year. <laughs> um, okay, I have to ask, what yeah. made you decide that you you want to learn or pick up the viola? When you were like at yeah. a concert master level in the youth orchestra with yeah. the violin. And then the other thing I need mm-hmm. to know is how different an instrument is it? I mean, I know it's different, but as for mm-hmm. playing it, the size is different, the sound is different, but how different is it to play yeah. from one to the other? Um, I think for me, uh, my first time picking up a viola was sort of like, uh, in a chamber music setting uh it was oh i can like read these really easy mozart viola well easy is an understatement but at the time um easy viola parts for a Haydn quartet or something like that just to see and i immediately fell in love with you know i had i was like sick of playing the melody all the time i was like cool i did that it's hard i have to shift it's all over the place it's <laughs> stressful with the viola i was able to just like be a supportive force i can you know i I get to be a chameleon musically i have solos where you know the viola comes out of the texture or i could be a bass instrument when the cello is soaring above it or i'm most of the time this inner voice that creates the harmonic structure of something and so i loved being able to again do eight million things at once um and the viola itself has this unique timbre it's close to a human voice it's not it's far from a perfect instrument. Acoustically, it, it doesn't really work. It doesn't project as well. Um, it would need to be like much larger. But it, it's viola's had this such this interesting history of its role as an instrument, and you can sort of go do a wide array of things with it. And so I fell in love with that role specifically in the chamber music setting. So I think that was my sort of hmm. I I like this. I like how this functions in this environment. I'd love to try it out. And it's a it's a switch a lot of people do. But to your second question, um, I don't think I realized how different the instruments are. And it's because it's in the nuance and the details that there's the minute differences that are actually the most astronomic is, you know, sound production because of the acoustic setup of the instrument. It's a, it's a different uh, right hand, a different bow arm, different pronation of the knuckles. We read it in a different clef. We read alto clef as opposed to treble clef. That was a, a like a two-week switch. It took a minute to... Yeah, I felt, yeah, it took a minute to switch that over. But um, yeah, the, 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 the essence of the instrument itself, how to make sound, sound production is a huge thing that we talk about. How to fill in textures and like even getting into details of when you're when you're placing a major third with in a quartet, for instance, it's like being aware, I have to be aware of exactly where everybody else is so that I can put my part exactly where it needs to be. It might not be if I was playing by myself where I would place things, 
but and so it's it's a it's supportive but also intuitive and constantly changing um and so i've just in the past two years started feeling comfortable as a violist and not a fake violinist trying to play viola it's a it's a really common thing a lot of a lot of violists switch from violin and so there's there's some like habits that have to be morphed or um, manipulated slightly in order to accommodate the instrument. Okay, so there is a video posted out there called Diary of a Failed Violinist. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes. Um, did, did you feel like you were a failed violinist? Or I, I presume that's tongue-in-cheek, but I mean, is there any part of it that, that you felt that way? Or is like was there any reason why you went to the viola because you, you didn't feel like you were yeah. reaching where you wanted to be with the violin? Um, I think for me, where I was with the violin, I started, the way I was taught and the way I sort of advanced was slightly unorthodox from somebody that would be doing music seriously. I never did Suzuki, which was a, a huge thing. I really didn't have a lot of technical prowess on the instrument. I sort of went with by ear and with my musicality first, which is good. I, I'm very grateful that I had an emphasis on that from an early age, because a lot of the times in, in string education, it's the opposite. You have to get the technique and then you learn how to be a musician. I sort of learned how to be a musician and now I'm playing catch up. But um, yeah, I, I loved the idea that um, all the not, all the second rate violinists, people think that they, you know, flip over to viola and then they become these great violists. And so I, yeah, it's very much a tongue in cheek thing. I think if I wanted to, I could have done what I wanted to on the violin because I think I'm doing what I want on the viola. Um, and um, and, you know, viol with violin, a large component is solo competitions or solo playing. And that's really not my thing. I've done it on viola. Um, I've done it on violin, too. And check. Uh, yeah, it's 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 sort of like, a OK, I did this thing because I need to at this stage of my development. But yeah, I um I love that idea of violist being a failed violinist. I think it's hilarious. Um, it's it's a not your thing. The violin and and doing the solo thing is not your thing because why? Yeah. Like, what is it about that that's not you? Um, I think there is a a sort of colloquial. Um, how do I put this? I think there's a differentiation in priority in the way that we prepare and perform solo music versus chamber right. music. I mean, the essence of collaboration is the most important thing to me. And this is still, you know, I have the utmost respect for a lot of soloists because that is a very, very difficult uh, path. Right. And so I just, I never, I love to collaborate. I love to, you know, be doing something with other people on stage and, you know, you know, solos collaborate as well with orchestras, but I don't, I don't like when it's the me show contrary to what many of my friends would say. Um, but I, I really like, you know, being a part of an ensemble. I've done solo stuff. And then, then you've also done a lot of orchestral work. Yes. Was there a point when you thought, I want to join an orchestra or work towards becoming an orchestra member or um, I know that you, your love of chamber music and string quartets some somehow took over at one point or another. Um, yeah. How, when did that happen? And 
was was there a possibility you would have joined an orchestra? Yeah, I mean, there's a very strong possibility. Hopefully, um, I guess hopefully maybe three and a half weeks ago, <laughs> but um, I was very involved with orchestra. I did NYO and I had done um, two of the youth symphonies in Pittsburgh. I played in various ensembles when I was at Manhattan School of Music, which is where I went for two years before I transferred to Juilliard. Um, I was principal of almost every Juilliard ensemble. I've subbed with Pittsburgh Symphony, Orpheus, and the New York Phil. Um, and I continue, I was just at New York Phil rehearsal yesterday, and it's something I love. I'm very grateful to have many opportunities. And it was something I considered because, um, frankly, it is a... It is one of the areas in the classical music realm right now where if you find yourself in a situation to get a spot in a major orchestra, um, which that not only is it uh, the essence of financial stability or even just the taste of it, uh, it it's a phenomenal opportunity to you know be able to live and also be a musician. And I really enjoy subbing a lot. I continue to do it now and the cellist in my quartet joshua also subs with the new york phil and um it's an incredible experience i don't think it's for me and i can tell you why one i like to have autonomy in my artistic endeavors and i think with the quartet there is the there's so much that you can do with that we get to sort of choose our rep we get to choose our schedule we get to have some sort of agency in who we work with and you know we signed with the three of us i don't have to rely on a section <laughs> not really that's i don't want to sound dismissive <laughs> of orchestra um even though at times i am i think um it's it, it to be completely honest it's fallen in some areas into a a one-track minded you go to a conservatory you practice your excerpts when an orchestra job so you can make money and then you just do that and you could do some other things um a lot of people make a wonderful life and do a lot of chamber music as orchestral musicians but i realized at a certain point especially when i started you know being serious with my current quartet i was like oh this is everything i've ever wanted it's uh artistically stimulating i'm a soloist i'm the good parts of being a soloist and the good parts of being an orchestra player are combined in a quartet um, I'm an ensemble player. I'm supportive, but I'm also myself. I get to be my own artist. And chamber music is so fun. It's just the most fun thing. You know, just sitting down with the three of them and putting together a thing, just like notes on a page and being able to say, these are our ideas. These are how we interpret it. And it's not based on just myself. And because all of our, our collective ideas are greater than anything that the four of us could come up with individually. So I think it just like, it snagged me early on, but I was prepared to uh, audition for the New York Phil in a few months when their real auditions opened, just so I could have, a you know, pay my rent uh, after I'm done with school and, and things like that. So. Well, the fact that you sub for them still gives you that experience and, and, the, and the fact that you can still play with them. It's, it's, pretty amazing so yeah i i don't know if this is true but when i with my limited work mm -hmm. with string quartets i get the impression that each player has a or each instrument might have certain personalities attached to them 
that the mm-hmm. f- first violinist is of a certain personality type versus the cellist uh-huh. versus the violist. So in your mm-hmm. transition from being a violinist to a violist, I mean, did you, was there, is there such a thing as a difference between a violin player's personality and a violist's personality? Yes. <laughs> uh, short answer, yes. I, um, that's one of the things that really drew me to the viola world over to the dark side, <laughs> they like to say. Um, it's just there's, you know, we're not the prima donnas and our instrument, we're the butt of many, many a viola joke. Um, and, you know, for a large portion of classical music history, we're just playing offbeats in the back. Um, and so it fosters this not only like explorative nature, so many violists are the ones starting nonprofits or doing interesting projects or um, are involved with so many things, commissioning works. Um, I think because there's an opportunity, it's not, we're not the stars of the show all the time. So we have the space and the, the sort of deflated ego <laughs> to, um, to sort of just like, uh, you know, everything's really chill with viola. Our, like our studios too. I'm in a studio at Juilliard with four teachers, which has about 30 some students in it. Um, and which should be terrifying. Um, it still is to play because Juilliard's known for its viola. It's a, you know, it's a, it's very much a viola school. There's incredible teachers, incredible students, but it's just such a welcoming, explorative environment with violists. Everybody's pretty chill because we're not worried about who plays the melody the best. Yeah, I, I think there's a difference. My quartet, it's, it's nice. <laughs> I still have essence. I, I, I have a, I still have an essence of a singer slash violinist personality in me, which I know my friends will. Echo okay, so well. singer's ego must be a little different. Wouldn't it be closer to oh, a, yeah. a violin ego? Like, I mean, you got to be uh, put yourself yeah. out there. <laughs> Absolutely. I mean, it's I. I so the 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 nice thing, not the nice thing, the thing about my singing involvement was yes, I was a musical theater person. Um, my school also like our musical theater program is really chill. We were like the the not. Uh, extroverted musical theater kids. We loved the art form, but we're like pretty chill. Um, and so I was never a classically trained singer. I just sang for fun. Like I, I had a, maybe a few lessons here or there. So I never adopted the the singer personality as well. <laughs> okay, but it is when we last spoke, you, you talked about the possibility of incorporating some of your singing into... Absolutely. Um, the string quartet or even other projects that you're involved in. Um, how mm-hmm. serious is that? I think for me now, now that I sort of have a, a launching pad career wise um, and have some sort of like definitive direction and, and where I can go with my career, I'm now so much op- more open to rewidening my artistic lens for a while, it was you do too much, you have to focus in order to do something well, um, which I still struggle with sometimes. It's, you know, I love chamber music, but solo repertoire in your studies is really important for developing some essential skills. And so being able to sit down and go, okay, I have to do this thing. I have to focus. I have to devote a lot of my time and energy to that. I think it's important. But now I'm at a stage where obviously I have to continue to do that with my quartet, but there's a little bit of freedom where I don't feel like I have to be unbelievably proficient 
in orchestra in case I need to take an orchestra audition or a young artist program solo audition. I I know what I want to do, so then I can start to incorporate um, a lot of my other artistic interests into what I'm doing. Okay, so when we spoke in Banff, we talked about the subject of diversity, especially in string quartets. And Mm -hmm. you you talked about what it was like to be a black musician in the classical music world. Can you talk about mm-hmm. that a little bit? And, and cause you talked about tokenism a little bit. Um, yeah. did it, did it ever affect you? Did it ever get in the way of what you were trying to accomplish? Mm-hmm. Um, yes, it affected me and, uh, Yes and no. Did it get in the way? Like, did um, it drive you further? I mean, or did you become more driven because of it? Oh yeah. I mean, so I, I mean, my, I grew up again in a single mother household. My mom is white, um, but and I went to a predominantly white school. Uh, but I, I think because I was the the talented kid at the school, right? That did a lot of things. I threw myself into that. I was able to find a lot of opportunities. I had such a supportive community. Um, and even though my, you know, my mom made everything work, even though I don't, I don't know how she did it. She still continues to do it. Um, anything I wanted to do, she was like, I'll figure out a way to do it. And she did. And so I, I never even had the inkling of, oh, I'm not supposed to be here because I, that wasn't on my radar. I didn't really care if anybody wanted me to be there or not, because I was there. And I was doing things at a at a high level, exceeding at them. So, um, it I, it wasn't really until high school, it's, it's really college, but a little bit in high school that I even started to recognize, like, oh, I'm not surrounded by a lot of people that look like me, or, you know, because of my financial situation and also my ethnicity, I was treated this way or treated this way. Um, the code switching thing, where I, you know, I I didn't really understand that I had sort of a whitewashed accent until I went to college and like went to school with other black musicians that either experienced the same thing or had seen other people experience. It's such a nuanced, interesting thing. Also like being biracial was, uh, I like to say I'm ambiguously brown, um, which is like another thing because, you know, uh, most of my close family is Italian. Um, And so like yeah it's i i was like you know going to christmas and being surrounded by 30 loud italians in a room um and so like i identify with that because they're my family and i'm half italian and etc and it's such a unique my own experience i don't even think i understand the nuance of how my 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 involvement with diversity or even the idea of it until I got to college. And then when I became aware of the disparities within the classical music industry of people of color and other minorities, um, I sort of just devoted my time to researching about it. I started my nonprofit with nonprofit in, in progress. Actually, we're filing for 501c3 status now. This is Opus. um, I started, yeah, Opus Illuminates. Yeah. So that was a direct response to everything that was happening in the world in April, May of 2020. Yeah, I, I didn't, I don't think I even, a lot of black students don't even realize, I had to educate myself, I had no idea, because I had grown up with people that supported me, and 
being in environments where like I had really close friends of in race and ethnicity and never really came into play. And now that I'm aware of classical music's relationship with diversity, I see a lot more, I hear a lot more, but I think I'm more equipped to make changes in that realm because for a while it was very much like once I got to school, I had to prove not only to, or I thought I had to prove not only to myself, but I had to prove to everybody else that I wasn't at MSM on a, on a full tuition scholarship because I was brown. I was there because I was a talented violist or I'm a Cogner fellow at Juilliard, which is an, its own unique thing because, you know, having getting getting paid essentially to go to school, like getting a stipend for your housing and your expenses and everything like that. It's so easy for people to go, oh, you you know, they need they need to fill some of those spots with black and brown people. Or anytime I show up somewhere and if I miss a note or if I screw something up, my uh, there's a thought in the back of my head that, oh, people are gonna think I was handed this as like a as a quota thing as opposed to actually deserving it. So it's something I'm aware of now. Um, and with a place like Banff, I can I can say after having experienced it, um, not only do they do they truly like like Barry and the entire team really fosters a healthy environment in the competition realm. Anyway, it was super important that there were four black musicians there, and that two of them won. And so that it's 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 this constant thing back and forth for me that's like it's important to obviously to advocate for black and brown musicians as one myself and do everything i can to sort of alleviate the disparity in the classical music industry but at the same time maintain the individuality of like who i am as a musician and what i bring to the table and when i show up to play my viola i don't always want people to go that's a really talented black violist that's a really talented violist and it goes back and forth and i think a lot of i can i can speak on behalf of a lot of black and brown musicians in my circles especially in my generation um that feel the same way all the time it's a constant back and forth of like okay how do i how do i navigate talking about this or how do i maintain pc or i have to be educated on my own existence uh and so to be able to like relay information. So I think there's there's an element of burden. There's an element of I'm very fortunate to have the foundation as well as the opportunities to be able to speak on these issues or to just be on a stage and execute well and happen to be black at the same time. Right. So it's it, it's very multifaceted and I'm excited to continue delving into my own research and how I see the role of you know what what diversity in classical music means period like what 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 does that actually mean and like where can where there's such a wide again there's another open field to take advantage of of like what is where do we go with with all of this so i, I wonder and this might be a silly question, but when you formed the quartet together, did this ever come up? Yeah. Is this ever even discussed within the quartet? So um, the other the other black musician in my group is Joshua, the cellist. And we met at Aspen Music Festival in 2018. I 
texted a friend. I was like, I'm trying to form a quartet. Do you know any cellists? Um, and he was like, yes, I do. This dude, he's really great. He's going to Juilliard next year. You would love him. So we started playing together then and we just like clicked musically uh, and as people. And then I met one of our violinists there. I met one of our violinists at a reading party at Juilliard and we sort of just read together and uh, we're friends. And so that was that. And it never was a thing that came up. And we didn't even really, like we didn't even really talk about it in terms of like the diversity specifically of the quartet even until after we won really, or while we were there, because it just was never a thing for us. It was like, okay, all four of us are really great musicians. Two of us happen to be black and it's, that's wonderful. Um, and Josh and I have conversations all the time, like about unique things that we deal with as black musicians or like, you know, the various things of just like being two larger black guys sitting next to each other in a quartet. <laughs> Um, even though we do, we do not look alike, people mistake us all the time. It's whatever I'm used to it. Um, but yeah. And so it's just, and now even still, it's like, it's great that Josh and I are the first two black winners of this competition. Cause you don't see a lot of black quartet musicians out there, especially, you know, doing some, something like BAM. That's great. That's, uh, I think one facet of who we are as a quartet is the diversity. Okay, so let's talk about the Banff International String Quartet, which is where we met. This is, which is yes. the competition that the Isidore String Quartet won. So when yes. we had met, we talked about applying for it, not really expecting a lot. And then now <laughs> you're the winner. And, and this has the potential of really changing your life and setting a course to follow as a string quartet. Tell me about that experience yeah. of Banff and and just tell me initially about the experience of Banff and being at that competition. Absolutely. Um, yeah, so we, we had been an official group. We were very, we are very young still and we're inexperienced as a quartet. We didn't decide to be a serious group until September of 2021. So about a year ago from now. Um, and so when we were applying to things, we had made a few videos. We had done like a Juilliard recital that was recorded. So we were like, cool, we have some videos. And we sort of were like, you know, let's just like shoot our shot. Let's throw it at some competitions some festivals. And we ended up, getting into Ravinia as a preformed group, which is like to go to Ravinia Steens Music Institute was like one of my dreams for a very long time, especially as a preformed group as well. And then when we got the call from BAMP, I remember Josh was in the shower and um, he got a call. And when he got out of the shower, he saw that it was from Alberta. And he was like, who's calling me from Canada at like 930 in the morning or whatever, whatever time it was. So then when he called him back and they were like, congratulations, he was just like silent on the phone <laughs> for a minute. Cause it was like, what a, how do you even, it was never, it was like a, oh, cool. In six years, we can do this. I think it'd be fun. Let's just try it now. Why not? We have a few videos and like, we didn't even know we would qualify. Cause we had, we had started playing together three years ago. And then the first time it didn't work, like we did not get along. And so we took like a year and a half off and then the pandemic in the middle. So we didn't even know if we met the requirements to be able to apply. So when they admitted us, we were like, wow. Um, okay. This is now March 
or I guess February, February, one of those months in this competitions in August, we have like five, six months to learn seven pieces. And so we just, you know, we had done some, but we like really started coaching seriously. And Ravinia was a wonderful opportunity to have incredibly intense musical study for five weeks as a quartet, which was great. And so then when we got here, uh, it was like, cool, we made it here. That's such an accomplishment. A dream would be to make finals, but you know what? We're just going to like do our thing because we're a collective age, average age of 22. Um, we have little to no experience and, um, we're about to pee our pants every moment because this is the most terrifying competition of our lives. So we just like, we're like, we're just going to go do us. Cause what else, are, what else can we do? It's like, we, we showed up, we had done as much preparation as we could. And it was like, cool, whatever happens, happens. And that was the mindset. We had done a lot of work and we cared deeply about the art form and we have amazing mentors. And so going through the competition, it was great because um, getting feedback from the audience that they really loved us was the only thing that we wanted to do. When we, came. we were like, we want someone to see us and see potential or have audience members be like, I loved your performance because that's the only thing that matters. I'm not a competition person at all. I don't like them. I wish all of them would just completely disappear. Um, I think a lot of them foster unhealthy relationships with audiences to music and with musicians to music um and because life's not like music isn't about competition i really don't think it is um and so this one was great when i found out that it just basically was like a big festival and like a celebration of quartet playing yes we were competing and so you know we were like hanging out with other quartet members and we were all sharing like the same anxieties and stories of rehearsals and it was just so great. And um, we had a great time. And then when they announced the finals and they said our name, it was sort of like, one, it was 1230 uh, AM on the day of finals. And so when they said our name in the list of the three quartets, we were like, oh my gosh, oh, now we have to go play a Beethoven quartet. <laughs> we had already done the first four rounds. And so then I got back to my room and I, of course I couldn't fall asleep till like 2.30 in the morning. And the, the finals were the next day. And, um, it just so happens that the you know the finals were a group playing 130 opus 130 and then another group playing 131 and we were playing 132 so it was a cool it was cool to have three consecutive late beethoven quartets but you don't really see it a lot of competitions either you get a lot of 59s and stuff like that so um yeah and we looked at each other we were like well we 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 hit our goal of make the finals don't know how but you know they have a mathematician doing the math here um for the scoring so i guess it's up the math worked out we're just gonna go and try to have a really really good time like this entire time we were like we have to prioritize the joy of being on stage and being at this competition and in our early 20s it's like when do you get to you know this is like a once in a lifetime thing so we just we just went and did it i feel like i blacked out a few times and um <laughs> there are some some moments and movements that i have no recollection of but yeah, it was the most exhausting week of my life. Also the most musically enriching. And then when the award ceremony came around, we were very fortunate to win the Haydn Prize too, which is like, even from that, when they handed us the prize for the best performance of a Haydn Quartet, I was like, cool. 
awesome. I'm good. Yeah, we can have third. I don't care. Like this in itself is such an accomplishment. And then they didn't say our name for third. And so we were like, okay, so it's one or two. And then when they didn't say our name for two, I just was, um, it was very, um, I felt like I was in the twilight zone. It was like, I don't, it was hard to remember when Barry was just like listing off the, the awards for the first prize. I was just like shaking my head. Like this is, this is, I'm going to have to pinch myself and wake up. Like I need some, one of these people to slap me. Um, I, yeah, I, I've been struggling to form complex sentences since that day. Um, because it's just, it was never on the radar. Like we, we went into it saying like, we're going to give it our all, but it was never that net. That was like, I didn't, I never thought in a million years we could win this right now where we are in like feeling unexperienced. Imposter syndrome is a real thing when you're a young musician. Like I, I'm like, I'm 23. How am I supposed to know what I'm doing on stage? You know? And so I, yeah. And, and when we won, it was like, I mean, the best feeling in the world so overwhelming still haven't really processed all of it yet it's slowly seeping its way in so when you're going through this and i think we ran into each other in the hallways a couple of times because you guys are constantly (laughs) rehearsing you're you're playing rehearsing and eating that's basically it right (laughs) um and you seem quite calm every time i saw you um but i presume that's a different story but do you have any sense while you're going through the competition before they make that announcement? Like, do you feel like, yeah, we've played really well, we're, we've done really well, and or like, what sense did you have beforehand? Yeah, no, I, I can I can say that we we knew that we played the best that we could in the in the first four preliminary rounds, which is hard for all of us to say because all of us fall into the perfectionist mindset, as so many musicians do, self-deprecating, et cetera, yada yada. But yeah, we sort of sat down and we're like, they, they, a lot of them can't listen. I'm, as soon as we're done, the phone's at my ear. I'm like, okay, what sounded good? What didn't sound good? What's going to go? Like, how uh, is my, am I projecting enough? So I'm very much like in, in the zone. And I'll, I think Adrian, for instance, is like, I'll listen in a month and a half. And so we all have our own different rituals and we hiked, uh, which was important. And like at night would go on walks or we, I went to the city every day and just like shopped or walked around or something because it was like if i sit in my room or if we're in this rehearsal space for one more hour i'm gonna go insane um it's just it was like you have to there was some sort of comfort in going i'm not going to change anything i'm not really going to learn anything new before tomorrow in terms of like what we prepared is what we prepared so we all just we prioritize like being healthy physically and you know, getting into each other's sound. We do Bach a lot. We just do Bach chorales together just to like warm up. And that's a ritual for us. Before we go on stage, we perform, we play a Bach chorale. It's the last thing we play together before we go on stage for everything. So yeah, it was sort of like a, why why work myself up? I'm here. I can't leave. <laughs> like I, I have no choice but to go on stage. Um, so I might as well just like try to be in this best of a physical, emotional and mental head, head body space. So now that you've won, and so in theory, you're, the next few years is kind of set out for you, right? Like there are certain yeah. things like you'll be touring Europe, you'll be touring the States, you'll have a residency, you'll be recording an album. Yep. 
How? What's that feeling like? Is it overwhelming? Is it? Is it frightening? Is it exciting? Yes. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah, I think I think this will come out after anyway. So we're we're um, aside from the prize package too. We are signing with management, which is wonderful too, and which is being announced tomorrow. I think so. Um, we're very fortunate to be working with David Rowe um, as a manager and you know, that alone brings some comfort that we have a really experienced manager helping us <laughs> with our North American and general management as well. And yeah, I mean, with the tours and the recordings and teaching and it is very overwhelming, but it's a dream come true. It's everything. This is my dream job. This is everything I wanted to do. I love teaching, coaching. I love traveling, being in a quartet, making recordings, um, not having a good excuse not to go to class. Um, it's, it feels great. Uh, yeah, we, um, yeah, it, it is the most overwhelming yet the most gratifying thing. That's the only way I can put it. If this didn't happen, if you mm -hmm. didn't win, and it sounds like you would have been totally fine by just the mm -hmm. experience of it all. But what course of action would the string quartet have taken without the win? Like, the, these are probably things you would have probably strived yeah, for absolutely. anyways, well, right? It depends, because we were all prepared to, you know, we all sort of had our our hands in different areas. Phoenix, one of the violinists, was about to go to Vinyovsky competition this month, um, a solo competition. Josh and I were preparing to audition for several orchestras. Like, we... We were like, this is a love, like we love doing this thing and this is a passion, but we have to be able to eat and sleep somewhere. Um, so it was realistic. It was like, a, we're gonna go. And if some, if a manager likes us there, even if we win or don't win, we're gonna run with it as much as we can. But we wanna be, we wanna be, we wanna be able to do other things if that's necessary. Because the quartet life is such an, I have, this is only from, like secondhand experience, I guess, or like people telling me that have lived the life that it's, it's so niche and it could be really difficult, but also just the most amazing thing ever. Um, and so to have a great manager and a win from this competition has set us up with the best possible foundation to make a career off of this. So we're excited to just have the opportunities to because now it really just is about like our, what our, what we say musically at the forefront. It's not, oh, can we get into the right room or are we going to be able to get enough concerts? Are we going to be able to make a recording or fund it? We now have those opportunities, which is like a once in a lifetime thing that came from this. And then when, when you have like the idea of, okay, you have a recording, like, is it going to be easy for you to go? Yeah, this is what we're going to record. Because I presume it's all four yeah. of you have to agree on what it is that you accomplish. Like, is that when this is just thrown at you, is that a simple thing to work your way through? Um, yes and no. Yeah, I guess, I guess we'll see. We have, we have a very interesting perspective on what we want to do as a quartet in the foreseeable future. It's a lot. Our programming ideas where right now we are, we are striking a balance between standard rep, which is, obviously a value but also we have a large we we have a, a fervent personal and group dedication to expanding 
what a quartet can do in terms of rep uh, venue involvement in other things so with this recording who knows we have no clue what we're gonna do yet um you know that's the sort of beauty of it is that like we have no idea what we're rehearsing in our rehearsal later today i mean we know what we're rehearsing but we have no idea how it's gonna go you know so it's i think in the it'll it'll hit us across the face when we need it to know what we're gonna be recording so when somebody told you before that the quartet life can be very, very difficult, did that ever deter you or did it matter in um, any way? You can, um, you can confirm this with my mother, but as soon as somebody tells me I can't do something, uh, that is the, my, oh, that's the fuel to my fire. I love when people tell me I can't do something because then I just like to go and do it really well. <laughs> well... Congratulations. I mean, I was so thrilled to hear you guys won. Like, it was just, it was so nice Thank to hear. And, and, and what a, what a thrilling time to, to go in expecting nothing and then to come out the winner and to have, you know, the next few years of your life kind of planned. And yeah, it's a dream come true. That's fantastic. Devin, it's a real, it was a pleasure meeting you in Banff. It's a pleasure meeting you and getting to know you a little better here. Thank you so much for doing this. Likewise, thank you for having me. All right, thanks.